Okay, so I guess we'll get started. Everybody must be stuck in traffic today. <laughs> what is that? It's not a holiday that we know about, is it? <laughs> All right. I guess I shouldn't be putting the notes online. <laughs> so, when we talked last time on Wednesday, we were talking about experimental systems looking at cell-mediated immunity, and we stopped talking about the cell-mediated lympholysis assay. And in this assay, we're going to take some, some label, and the label we were talking about was sodium chromate, and we're going to label cells with sodium chromate, and then we're going to have those cells, which will be our target cells, be incubated with any other cell that we're interested, be it a cytotoxic cell or, or any other cell that we want to look at. And we're going to look to see if those cells that are going to be able to attack and destroy the chromium-labeled cells. And when we do our chromium release assay, we're looking for uh, chromium being released into the supernatant fluid, and that's going to be able to show that cells that we're interested in, be they lymphocytes or neutrophils, or we're looking at ADCC, are going to be able to destroy those labeled cells. And that label is going to be our marker to be able to see what's taking place. I wanted to leave about talking, or leave with talking, about another set of cells that are called, uh, well, they're called regulatory T cells now, but in the, back in the day they were called suppressor T cells. So if you remember, this was our lymphocyte precursor, and we were going to go to a B cell, we were going to go to a T cell, we had a whole bunch of different B cells, we had T helper cells, cytotoxic T cells, we talked about Th1, Th2, Th9, THFH, right? We talked about a whole bunch of those. And then from here we talked about CTL cells. Well, there's another type of a cell that can be derived from a naive T cell. And these days it's called a regulatory T cell. But back in the day, in the 1970s and 1980s, people were looking for what was called the suppressor T cell. So in the 1970s, some experiments were done where if you injected mice, if you immunized mice with large doses of a certain antigen, right? they would become unresponsive or tolerant to the antigen. Right? When we talk about tolerance, when we talk about autoimmunity, we'll talk a little bit more detail about tolerance. So here, this experiment didn't seem to make sense. Right? If I take an antigen and if I inject it into a mouse, that mouse should make antibodies. That mouse should right, mount an immune response to that antigen, to that foreign protein, but it didn't happen. And the idea here was that it was certain antigens, and we'll talk about what makes these antigens so wacky, right, or what they were, uh, or, or why they use these different type of antigens, but we'll talk about that, that uh, in, a, in a little while. The thing that they found by doing these experiments was, a major sort of find was that this, unre this unresponsive state could be transferred to other mice, to normal mice, by transferring T cells. Right? So that means we had a T cell population that was being stimulated or that was acting upon the immune system somehow to be unresponsive to those antigens that we were injecting. And if we had a, 
the ability to transfer the T cells, it means we had the ability to isolate the T cells. And if we could isolate them, then we can study them. So, the hypothesis was that there was a population of these regulatory T cells capable of mediating suppression of the immune response. That's a pretty good hypothesis. We have this cell population right here, T helper cells, right? And they're basically going to stimulate the immune system by releasing interleukin-2, by releasing interferon gamma, by releasing all those different cytokines that we were talking about. So why couldn't we have a T cell population that was going to keep the immune system in check, right? To inhibit the immune system. Just as good a hypothesis as any. And when we did these experiments, and we could see that we had this turning off of the immune response. Or when we did this experiment and we found that we could transfer this sort of activity by taking T cells and transferring them to another animal, right? This would made a pretty good sort of a hypothesis. And that was up to people to identify the cells and to track it down. The trouble was that it was hard to look at these cells. It was hard to characterize the cells. So there was really not a lot of evidence to support the hypothesis. Right? There was no distinct subpopulations. There was no membrane marker. There was no cell lines. We know that if we, if we want to isolate T helper cells, we just use a technique to be able to, to, to characterize and isolate all the cells that have CD4 on their cell surface. We have a cell population of T helper cells. If we want to be able to isolate cytotoxic T cells, we take all the cells that have CD8 on their cell surface, we can grow them in tissue culture, we can do assays, we have cytotoxic T cells. People couldn't find right, a subpopulation. They couldn't find a membrane marker, a specific membrane marker for any of these different cell lines or any of this activity. So people were sort of hemming and hawing. They didn't know. They couldn't understand. Some research suggested Right? It was the result of some antagonistic effects of certain T-cell cytokines, like interleukin-10 or TGF-beta. We talked about interleukin-10 and TGF-beta as being sort of major inhibitory cytokines of the immune system. So because of that, people thought that it could have been Th2 cells. Right? At that point in time, the Th2 cell line or the Th2 subpopulation of T helper cells was first being discovered, so people thought, oh, well maybe it's the Th2 cells that are releasing their cytokines and, and inhibiting the immune system, so maybe it's the Th2 cells. So people were sort of hemming and hawing back and forth, right? They didn't have much of, a, of, a, of an experimental system for it until a couple of years ago, it's got to be five or six years ago now, right? Investigators have shown and they have characterized a population of T cells, and this population is about 10% of all the CD4 positive T cells, so they are a T helper cell sort of derived uh, cell line that can suppress the immune response. So people didn't want to call them suppressor T cells because they didn't want to be you know, caught up in all of, the, all of the drama that people couldn't figure out what suppressor T cells were, so they called them regulatory T cells, right? And the regulation that the T cells are giving is an inhibitory signal to the rest of the immune system. There is a marker. These, pop, these cells are CD4 positive, so they are A, right? 
this sort of way to characterize the cell isn't at all right. They are regulatory T cells. They're also CD4 positive, so they're CD4 positive T regulatory cells. Same way, right? They're going to fit in the family of Th1s, Th2, Th9s. They all express CD25 on the cell surface. They're regulatory T cells, and they inhibit the proliferation of other T cell populations, of other T cell lines. So now we, can carry, well now we can isolate all the CD25 positive cells, right, that are also CD4 positive. We can grow them in a dish, and if we take those CD25 T cells and incubate them with t other T helper cells, other cytotoxic T cells, we can see that these T cells are going to be able to inhibit all the other cells in the T cell line, in the T cell lineage. Right? So they are able to right, give the negative signal to the immune system. Same way the Th4 positive naive cells or Th1s, Th2s can give positive signals, the CD25 regulatory T cells can give an inhibitory system. The suppression itself is antigen specific. Right? When we say it's antigen specific, we're getting into our, our buzzwords that are going to be able to identify right, specific interaction. And this is activation through the T cell receptor itself. Right? So a lot of people are looking at regulatory T cells these days. Right? Cell contact between the T regulatory cells and their target is absolutely required. And the target is going to be a cell in which the regulatory T cell wants to turn off or wants to suppress. So, there's a lot of interest in these cells, in these regulatory T cells these days, because if we could isolate these regulatory T cells, right, we can put up sort of a thing here, right, if we could isolate them, they're going to be important for clinical implications, right? The, 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 T, the regulatory T cells, the CD5, CD25 positive cells, release cytokines into leukin 10 and TGF-beta almost exclusively. That's how they're going to be able to control the rest of the immune response in addition to right, being able to have that intimate cell contact between the T regulatory cells and the other T cells. So there are a lot of biotechnology companies out there right now that are working on either stimulating or inhibiting regulatory T cells. right? to be able to control the immune response. So, if we are a biotechnology company who's interested in, let's say, right, cancer immunotherapy, and we want to be able to turn on the immune response to be able to attack tumor cells, our sort of model is going to be, what can we do to turn off the T regulatory cells? What can we do to, to turn off the signal that's shutting down the immune system? Right? If we can do that, we might be able to actually stimulate the immune system to be able to recognize and destroy more tumor cells. On the other hand, if we're transplantation specialists and we're interested in making transplantation drugs, maybe we want to be able to find a way to turn on T regulatory cells so that they're going to be able to give the inhibitory signal to the rest of the immune system to be able to turn off the attack that might be coming towards a possible grafted tissue that we've put into an individual. 
Right? So we can have both sides of the equation here. We either want to turn on the T regulatory cells or we want to turn off the T regulatory cells so that the immune system can right, have a more aggressive approach to, to, the, to the whatever the, our idea is. Right? If we're going to turn off the regulatory T cells, we're going to stop signals from inhibiting the immune system and those cells, those signals now are going to be able to stimulate and destroy more tumor cells, for example. Okay. All right. So now we sort of have all of the cells in play that we need to be able to identify when we start talking about the misregulation of the immune system, right? when we talk about immunodeficiencies and autoimmunity. But before we do that, I want to take a couple of lectures and start talking about more techniques, more sort of experimental systems. And that first experimental system that we can start talking about are monoclonal antibodies. Right? We've sort of talked a little bit about monoclonal antibodies in, the, in, in talking about doing experiments and experimental systems and talking about antibodies and using antibodies as drugs. And today's Friday. And on Wednesday, when we talk more specifically about using antibody as drugs, right, we'll talk more about those specific instances. But for now, let's just sort of talk about monoclonal antibodies themselves. So a monoclonal antibody is going to be an antibody right, that has recognition of a single antigenic determinant. And we have techniques for producing virtually unlimited quantities of this very specific antibody molecule. This is going to be based on the fact right, that each B lymphocyte produces antibodies of a single specificity. Right? They are monospecific. In general, we've been talking about, when we talk about the immune response, right, we've been talking about a polyclonal response. Even though when we put up this picture and we talk about a specific antigen stimulating a B cell and we have this sort of response, that is opposed to right, our other cartoon that we've been using where we have this bacteria where we can have right, an unlimited amount of antibody molecules being able to recognize this particular uh, bacteria by looking at those unlimited amount of epitopes that are going to be on the cell surface. So when the immune response takes place, this is just for illustrative purposes here, but right, we can have a whole bunch of B cells responding to any one of these antigens, of these epitopes, Right? from these unlimited amount of epitopes that can possibly appear on the surface of this bacteria, for example. Right? So that's what we've been talking about. Right? We've been talking about all B cells being able to recognize. Now what we're saying, now what I'm saying is we're going to be able to isolate right, this particular immunoglobulin molecule from all those immunoglobulin molecules that are generated during the immune response, we have an experimental technique to be able to isolate that individual antibody molecule, that monoclonal antibody. 
right? That's going to this particular epitope in this example right here, right? We don't care about antibodies that are recognizing that epitope or recognizing that epitope, right? During the normal immune response, we're going to generate all of them, but in our experimental system, we're going to be able to isolate that one antibody molecule, right? And this is a monoclonal antibody. We're going to perform a cell fusion, and it's called somatic cell hybridization. Right? We're going to be able to fuse cells together between a normal antibody-producing B cell and a, myel and, a, and a cell that is a tumor cell, right, from a myeloma. And we talked about myelomas before, right, as being B cell tumors. We're going to be able to select that fused cell that secretes the antibody of the desired specificity Right? That's going to be derived from that normal B cell. This fusion-derived, immortalized antibody-producing cell line is called a hybridoma. So this technique was first, you know, sort of batted around in the early 1970s. And the first papers were published around 1971 or 1972 or so. And this was considered such a breakthrough, right, this, the, the research that led to producing monoclonal antibodies, that it won a Nobel Prize less than a decade later. By 1984, the Nobel Prize was handed out for the discovery of monoclonal antibodies. Right? Usually it takes, I wouldn't say a lifetime, because they don't give Nobel Prizes to dead people, but it takes decades or decades of your work, right, and showing how sort of permeating it is, right, through all sorts of levels of science, to be able to be garnered a Nobel Prize, but this one took about a decade. That's how important it was. Okay? So what we want to try to do here is, by making these hybridomas, we want to take the, the specificity of that B cell producing that individual antibody molecule, Right? That's what we want to get from the B cell. And from the myeloma, we want to be able to get its immortality. Those myelomas, those tumor cell lines, will live forever. And that's what we're trying to produce when we make this fusion. The specificity of the B cell, well, even though the myeloma is a B cell, right? But the specificity of the normal B cell and the immortality of the tumor that is the B cell. Okay, is that B cell tumor. And that's what we're going to be able to do. So normally, if we take this antigen, and, we, and, we, and in, this, in this cartoon, we inject it into this mouse, right? that mouse is going to produce all sorts of antibodies to all the antigens, on, all, all the epitopes on the surface of that antigen, whatever it is. If this antigen is a protein, if this antigen is a virus, if this antigen is a bacteria, if this antigen is a fungus, right? we're going to get all the antibodies if we collect the serum. Now what I'm saying is we have a technique where we're going to be able to isolate individual B cells and at the end of the day we can culture and produce an unlimited amount of these particular, these individual antibody molecules. Right? We could produce antibody, in this, in this cartoon, antibody 1, antibody 2, antibody 3, antibody 4. In the polyclonal serum, they're all produced together in the, in, the, in the mouse blood, but in our experimental system, 
we can isolate and characterize and produce large amounts of each one of those individual antibody molecules. And that's what we're going to try to do when we do our monoclonal antibody experiments. So when you think about what's taking place, remember we've talked about the fact that there are right, billions of B cells in the body at any one point in time. About 10 to the ninth, right? That's several billion B cells at any one point in time. If there are that many B cells, it means there are about that many antibody molecules that could be manufactured at any one point in time, right? Those 10 to the ninth B cells are going to produce individual antibody molecules. That's what we talked about when we talked about how that B cell, right, when the immunoglobulin molecule rearranges and that B cell makes its way out into the periphery, right, it's going to be able to produce an unlimited amount of antibody molecules. So if there are 10 to the ninth antibody molecules at any one point in time, we have the ability to, to isolate and purify and manufacture that one individual antibody molecule that we're interested in. And that's what the techniques of monoclonal antibodies are going to be able to do for us, right? Isolate and identify that one specific antibody to a particular antigenic determinant. So, you sort of figure, well, why would that be important? Well, let's say we have a normal cell line and we have a receptor here. And we know that if this protein interacts with this receptor, it's going to stimulate this cell somehow. Okay? And we want to prevent that from happening. There's a whole bunch of different ways we could do it. We could add something to kill this cell, but let's say we don't want to kill the cell. Right? We could add an antibody here, and that antibody could bind to right, these receptors on the cell surface. If it did that, we might get cross-linking, we might stimulate the cell anyway. Well, then you could argue, okay, well, what if I added an FAB fragment here? And absolutely, that would work. We could add an FAB fragment in here. But what if there were other receptors on other cell lines that we didn't want those FAB fragments to be able to interact with? So that means we have to stop the ligand itself. And what if we knew that this area right here it is important for binding between this protein and these receptors on the cell surface. We could make an antibody molecule to this. Oops, sorry. We could make an antibody here, and that would prevent this binding. It would prevent this protein from having other effects, let's say, right, by binding. Maybe this is binding to a different receptor, and this part binds to a different receptor. We don't want to inhibit any of those properties of the molecule. We just want to be able to block it from binding to that cell. So we would want that particular epitope. We would want that particular antibody. We're not going to stimulate the cell, and we're not going to stop that protein from having other effects in the body that we want to continue it to have. Right? So that would be one example of why we want to make a monoclonal antibody. Okay. So we're going to produce unlimited quantities of a single antibody molecule specific for a single epitope. And again, based on the fact that each B lymphocyte produces an antibody of a single specificity. That monospecific activity of that B cell is absolutely what we want to start to look at and what we want to be able to take place. So that cell fusion is going to be between that normal antibody-producing B cell 
Right? We're going to isolate it from the spleen because we get a lot of B cells in the spleen, or we could we could take it from a lymph node, right? But a spleen is a pretty big organ; it's easy to dissect out. B cells of that specificity, right? We're assuming are going to be in the spleen, in the germinal centers, right? So we're going to be able to do that, and we're going to fuse it with a cancerous B cell, that myeloma. The selection of the fused cell that secrete the antibody has the desired specificity of the normal B cell, and again, this fusion, this, these two cells coming together, right, are called a hybridoma. So in the early 1970s, right, people were doing experiments, cell biologists were doing experiments, where they were able to fuse one somatic cell line right, with another somatic cell line. And this hybrid cell line was called a heterocarion. And we can do this, we can use a whole bunch of different sort of, of, uh, of different chemicals, different activators, right? And if we incubate the two cell types with that agent that's going to be able to promote membrane fusion, and certain viruses can be used, but, you know, we don't want to get carried away in viruses. We can use uh, certain chemical reagents as well. One of them is polyethylene glycol. So, the plasma membranes, the cytoplasm, and the nuclei are all brought together in this single hybrid cell, right, into this heterocarion. Initially, it's multinucleated, because we can't stop, right, a whole bunch of different cells from fusing. We can't stop three four cells from fusing together, right? If we put in the polyethylene glycol, any sort of cells that are in contact with each other when the polyethylene glycol is in the mix are going to be able to fuse. So we could have two, anywhere from two to five, a whole bunch of different nuclei together in this heterocarion. So as this heterocarion now starts to divide, right, during cell division, those nuclear membranes are going to start to disintegrate. A single large nucleus, containing right, chromosomes from all the parent cells are formed. This is one of the things that a, that a cell will try to do. Right? If, a, if a cell turns cancerous, so this is sort of an example of early tumorogenesis or experiments that were looking at early tumorogenesis. And what these studies found was, or were, what they found, yes it would be were, was that the cells will try to expel chromosomes, right, until it gets to the proper chromosome number. It will try to break apart the nucleus until it gets to an individual nucleus, right? It'll keep fusing and keep throwing off chromosomes until it stabilizes into this new cell, into this new heterocarion. So, Right? We can do it. We can show pictures here where we're staining one cell red and we're staining one cell green. We add some polyethylene glycol. The cells fuse together. We get certain, right? The nuclei all come together to make this giant nucleus. And then after a while, right, the cell will get smaller and it'll come into, right, into a, a, a more normal sort of configuration. We take our spleen cells and our myeloma cells, we're going to do the same thing. We're going to fuse them in polyethylene glycol. Here's an electron micrograph of cells undergoing fusion itself. So we're going to take our two cell lines in polyethylene glycol. Right? The nucleus is going to be able to fuse and come together into a single nucleus. We're going to get rid of chromosome loss until we get this stable cell now. 
this is the hybridoma we'd be interested in, and then we're going to have to characterize that hybridoma for the antibody specificity that we're looking for. Okay. So, those hybrid cells have got to be separated from the unfused parent cells themselves. So, if we have the A cells and we have the B cells, I'm not going to say B cells, and we have the C cells, right? If I say B cells, everybody get confused. So if we have A cells and C, even though it's going to say A, B, and up there, right? So if we have the A cells and the C cells and they fuse together, what outcome could we get? Well, a couple of A's could fuse and we could get A's again. A couple of C's can fuse and we could get C's again. But the cell we're interested in would be the AC cells, right? The two cells that have come together that are contributing portions from each one of those two parental cells. Some cells are going to be AA, some are going to be, for lack of a better word, BB, and the hybrid cells, the hybridoma cells, are going to be the AB hybrid cells. Those are the ones we're interested in. And so how are we going to be able to isolate those particular cells? What we're going to be able to do is we're going to grow all of our cells in a selection media. It's going to be a tissue culture media that's going to contain certain pharmacological agents that are going to promote the growth and proliferation of those AC cells, of those hybrid cells. And a medium was worked on that's called HAT medium, and it contains the drugs hypoxanthine, amphotericin, and thymidine. And in HAT selection, it's going to be based on the fact that mammalian cells are able to synthesize nucleotides, right? Nucleotides in order to make DNA by two different pathways. We have the de novo pathway and the salvage pathway. Oh, there's my bad... Oh, that's my bad... Uh, my bad PowerPoint, too. These actually should be arrows. <laughs> All right, so here's our hat media. Here's our two different pathways, right? We want to be able to make DNA. We want to inhibit the production of DNA in the AA cells and inhibit the production of DNA in the CC cells. But we want the AC cells to be able to work fine. So in the de novo, in the de novo pathway, right, this is sort of the way in which DNA is normally made. We take the building blocks of DNA to be able to make new nucleotides to make the DNA. In HAT media, this is going to be blocked by, right, by the uh, aminopaterin, the drug that's going to inhibit the de novo pathway. If the de novo pathway shuts down, then there's called the salvage pathway, right, and hypoxanthine or, or thiamine is going to be used to be able to manufactured DNA by making nucleotides, and this is going to be catalyzed by two enzymes, HGPRT, right, hypoxanthine guanine phosphatidyltransferase, and also thymidine kinase. So if we can control those two pathways, if we can knock out the pathway when we want the cells to die, or if we can promote the pathway when we want the cells to live, that's going to be a way in which we're going to be able to select our hybridoma, right, or our hybrid cell line. And that's exactly what these, these individuals worked out. Right. So, 
Certain cells that we're going to use in our media are going to be HGPRT negative, right, and thymidine kinase positive. And the cancer cells themselves are HGRT positive and thymidine kinase negative. So the normal cells are going to be able to give us the enzymes that we need, right, to allow these tumor cells to grow. And that's what our fusion is going to give us, right? The normal cells will die, because we've talked about this before, where we've said that normal cells won't last very long in culture. Right? So those cells are going to die anyway, so we don't care about those cells. What we want to try to do now is we want to try to kill the tumor cells. And by growing it in that media and using right, these defects in the cancer cell itself, the cancer cell is going to be able to die. So here's our sort of regular splenic B cell. Right, it's going to die after a while. It really doesn't matter, right? Because it's going to be able not to live in culture. When we're using this right, cell line that's TK minus, since we're shutting down the other pathway, right? Since this cell can't use the, the, other, the, 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 the first pathway, right? It's not going to be able to use the salvage pathway. We need a way to shut down the de novo pathway. So that's why we're putting amphotericin in. Okay? So that's going to be able to shut down the other pathway. So this cell's going to die. Right? Because inside the hat media, there's nothing for it to be able to use. This cell dies. This cell dies because it's normal. The fusion of these two cells together is going to allow this hybrid cell to be able to live. So unfused spleen cells or fused spleen cells, they're going to die. Fused myeloma cells, unfused myeloma cells, they're going to die in hat media. The only thing that's going to be able to live are the hybridoma cells. So this was the big step forward to be able to allow this to be able to take place. So the myeloma cells are HGPRT negative. Right? They can't grow in hat. The normal cells, the B cells, are terminally differentiated, and they're only going to go for about four or five days or so in vitro. Right? We've talked about this before, normal cells and tissue culture, so that only the hybridoma cells are going to be able to live and grow. We're going to be able to take those hybridoma cells that we're growing now, and we're going to screen them for the antibody that we're interested in, and then we're going to isolate by subcloning those, ant ant those antibody positive cells to ensure that that is the antibody that we're going to grow in our tissue cultures. Right? We want to have that individual B cell or that individual hybridoma that is secreting the antibody that we're interested in. Right, growing in our culture media, growing in our culture dishes. Because we don't want to have any other antibodies contaminating those culture dishes. When we go to purify, when we go to ramp up, when we go to make our big, you know, sort of like gallon cultures and, and isolate the antibody molecules that are being secreted from these hybridomas, we don't want to have any other contaminating antibodies in there. So what we're going to do is we're going to subclone these. So by subcloning, it means that we're going to take the cells and we're just going to keep diluting them and diluting them and diluting them. And then we're going to grow them up again. And then we're going to dilute them and we're going to dilute them and we're going to dilute them again. And when we're doing our biological assays, as long as those assays are showing right, that the antibodies that we're interested in are staying in those subclones, 
at the end of the day, those are the cells that we're going to want to grow up to be able to isolate and characterize those antibody molecules themselves. So, the hybridomas themselves, they can be propagated in tissue culture. They're going to be able to give rise to large clone-secreting homogeneous antibody molecules themselves. Right? So when you put it all together, right, we're going to take this antigen and we're going to inject it into this mouse. These mouse B cells are going to start right, producing antibodies to that antigen that we're interested in. We're going to fuse these B cells that we're going to get from the mouse that we are right, stimulating with the antigen we're interested in. Fuse them with the myeloma cells right, that are HGPRT negative in polyethylene glycol. The unfused or the fused B cells are going to die. The unfused or the fused myeloma cells are going to die. We're going to take this, right, this particular cell with hat media. We're going to make the hybridoma. We're going to subclone. And then we're going to start ramping up production. We're going to start to grow grams and grams and grams worth of this monoclonal antibody. Because this is the drug that we're interested in using. We're going to have to purify the monoclonal antibody. We're going to have to package the monoclonal antibody. So we need lots. We need grams, if not kilograms worth. That's what we're hoping for. We're hoping that this is going to go out to be a therapeutic agent, such an important drug Right, that we're going to make kilograms worth of antibody molecules. That's going to make us rich beyond belief, okay? So that's what we're going to try to do. So we can either do it in tissue culture, or right, we can grow it in animals themselves. Right? We can make pockets that are called acidic fluid. And acidic fluid is the fluid that builds up inside the area below the diaphragm. Right? We're not going to inject it into the lung, we're going to inject it into the area in the, around the digestive area below the diaphragm. That's going to become irritated. Fluid is going to be able to build up and we're going to be able to grow our cells inside that animal. We're going to have to sacrifice the animal eventually and isolate those antibodies that this mouse is producing for us. But that, you know, that that can get really, really sort of bogged down. Right? We could have other proteins, right? the other proteins that the mouse is making means we need more biochemistry, it means we need more purification, right? it needs we need more man hours or person hours, right? we need more infrastructure to be able to isolate the antibody molecules. So most of the time we're going to grow it in culture. Right? If we grow it in culture, those Hybridoma cells, those immortalized B cells, are just growing and they're just releasing antibody molecules into the supernatant fluid. Yes, they're probably releasing other sort of proteins, but the vast majority of those proteins that are coming into the supernatants of those tissue cultures are going to be the antibody molecules that we're interested in. Right, so now we have this way to be able to make lots and lots of antibody molecules. So, now, we have to go back to sort of our biological activity here, and we have to screen to make sure that that particular antibody that we're looking for, from those thousands and thousands, and if we're lucky, from those millions and millions of hybridomas that we've grown, 
we got to be able to screen for the specificity that we're looking for. Right? So we're going to take each one of those subclones, right? and we're hoping we have thousands and thousands of them, because that would be a real productive sort of hybridoma that we've grown. Right? We're going to get lots and lots and lots. Since we have, right, since all of these tumor cells are the same, but all these B cells are all totally different, right? We've isolated every single B cell from that spleen and put it in with those tumor cells. So these hybridomas out here, right, we could have thousands and thousands of thousands of these hybridomas. Right? We could have thousands and thousands of antibody specificities, and that's what we're hoping for. So that's why we got to screen them. So now we start to screen them. We find our different specificity that we're looking for. We've talked about ELISA. This is usually what we're going to use to be able to screen. Right, so we could be able to do, right, well, we've already talked about ELISA, so let's go to, so let's just think about this for a second, right? We talked about doing an indirect ELISA or a sandwich ELISA, let's forget about the sandwich ELISA, let's talk about the indirect ELISA. So what we're going to do is we're going to coat this protein onto the surface of the dish, right, that's the protein that we're interested in, we're going to add our antibodies, and we're going to see if our antibodies bind to that protein itself. That's going to get rid of all the other, right, all those thousands and thousands and thousands of other antibodies that we're not worried about. So in this specificity here, it depends upon how many epitopes are there. So maybe we could get hundreds and hundreds of different antibodies, monoclonal antibodies to that protein. And then if we use more, more selection and more selection and more selection, more different biochemical techniques to only have this epitope, right? So if we take that epitope and we somehow make a protein, make, an epi, make a, uh, a synthetic peptide and put it onto the bottom, then we're going to be able to get that particular antibody molecule from all those antibody molecules. So we're going to screen the cells for antibody production. We're going to subclone them, make sure they're all purified. We're going to propagate them in tissue culture, and we're going to get lots and lots of homogeneous antibody molecules. Right? That's, the, that's what we want to get. At the end of the day, that's what we want to be able to have when we make these things. So what we're going to be able to do, right? we can use all sorts of different techniques here. Right? We can use them in an ELISA. We could use them in a radioimmunoassay, right? That's just like, a, 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 like an ELISA, only we're going to use anti-isotype antibodies. The bound label is going to be detected by counting the individual wells, right? Using an RIA, we might be able to screen it a lot faster than using an ELISA, so we're going to be able to do that. Maybe one of the antibodies, maybe one of the screens we could use is immunofluorescence, right? We talked about immunofluorescence before. That desired antibody is going to be specific for a cell surface molecule. Right? The target cells are going to be stained with a fluorochrome conjugated to the monoclonal antibody. Right? I think we put up, I think I put up this slide when we talked about using antibodies. In this case, we're going to use monoclonal antibodies to screen in this for an epitope that we're interested in. Well, any sort of biological assay, any sort of screen, any sort of the ability to be able to right, get rid of all those other antibody molecules that we're raising in our tissue cultures, right, anything we can do to get the specificity, that's what we're going to be able to do. 
the end of the day, we're going to use these monoclonal antibodies. We've already talked about the ability of identifying particular epitopes on the surface of immune cells right, that we can use as markers. So we can use these monoclonal antibody molecules as markers to identify CD4 or CD25 or any other cell surface protein. We can use them for immunodiagnostics. We can diagnose different infections, different systemic diseases. This is going to rely on the detection of those specific antigens or antibodies in the circulation or the tissues themselves. We can do tumor diagnosis and therapy. We can use monoclonal antibodies if we take those monoclonal antibodies and we label them with a radioactive marker and we inject them into the patient. Those antibodies will bind to the specific proteins, those specific epitopes on the surface of a tumor cell. We'll be able to map in the body where those tumor cells are located. We could put some sort of a poison on the monoclonal antibody, and we'll talk about this on Wednesday. We could put some sort of poison on the monoclonal antibody, and if that monoclonal antibody is specific for an epitope on the surface of a tumor cell, we'll be able to destroy that tumor cell. All right, so this is what monoclonal antibodies have done for us, and this is why monoclonal antibodies were, I don't, know, I don't want to say they were honored, but this is why monoclonal antibodies were awarded a Nobel Prize, or the discovery of the monoclonal, not the monoclonal antibodies themselves, the discovery of the monoclonal antibodies were awarded a Nobel Prize because monoclonal antibody technology now is probably, you know, if it's not billions of dollars worth of business, it's, you know, it could be hundreds of billions of dollars worth of business. When you go home tonight and you watch the news and they talk about right, certain antibodies that are being used in diagnosis and treatment of certain cancers, right? good old Phil Mickelson, right? he gets his monoclonal antibody, it helps him with his rheumatoid arthritis. And we'll talk more about those products on Wednesday. That's it. Wow, four minutes. Any questions? <laughs> you want to get to, uh, you can get to neurobiology that much sooner. All right, have a good weekend. Talk more about these things. We'll talk about vaccines on Monday. <laughs>